Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, thank you for that reading, Lisa. The kids are invited to join Emily for Kids Church today. So far in the Sermon on the Mount, we have heard these blessings of, of people, the poor in spirit, those who are persecuted, those um, who are meek, those who mourn. And we've heard Jesus call out this community as essential for the life of the earth. You are the salt, that which gives its, its flavor, that which preserves it, that's what purifies it. You are the light, that which shines in the darkness. Jesus names these two things at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and so it is that, that grace seems to proceed in the sermon. It doesn't just start with law or demands, but it starts with this blessing and this call into which we are graced with God's presence with us and before us as the community of disciples. But it doesn't stay there forever. Um, it moves to the demands of what discipleship is. It moves to the calling of what this life is to be and how this community of believers, and that's one of the things we've tried to talk about, is how this is a word to a community of believers. There's this sort of individualizing tendency of the Sermon on the Mount, but actually what Christ is doing is forming a community of disciples in the world. It's why he calls them forward at the start and why he addresses them, and he sends them out as this community that's commanded to be this. Um, the phrase we used last week, which comes from, from the salt and light images too, is that they are to be a contrast society in the world. There's to be something different about them as they go about. And this week it shifts um, to what does it mean to be a disciple? What is the content and the character of a disciple? But before it gets there, Jesus gives this teaching about what his relationship is to what came before him. Is he just going to give a new law? Is he just going to start all over again? Is he going to correct and amend the law? Is he, like many of the rabbis during the time, going to weight the law, sort of, sort of place it in a realm and say that this is more important and this is less important? Or like the Pharisees of the time, and it's, incidentally, Jesus um, has a lot of the similar characteristics of the pharisaical culture, but is doing it differently than they are. So the Pharisees at this time sort of rely on oral tradition. They, they have an oral Torah that they sort of proclaim in the world. And Jesus sort of joins them in that, but tilts that interpretation to something else. And as it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and other places, is that he doesn't seem to teach like the other people do. He does so as if he has authority. 
He does so. And, and so when we think about him joining that culture of debate over what the law means at this moment in time, even the people at the time go, he seems to be doing it differently than everybody else. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them, is where this passage starts for us today. That he has come to sort of fulfill what has come before, fill it to the full. And how is that something that we are supposed to take with us today? I think this is one of those things we talked at the start of the sermon, that there are so many angles at which we can, we can fall, when interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, and there are only a few at which we can stand. But one of the ones for the church historically is Jesus is addressing an angle at which we almost continually fall, which is, do we need the Old Testament? Or is the Old Testament the stories of a different God? Now, this is, this is the way that um, Marcion and people in the first couple centuries talked about it, um, and it's the way we talk about it today is much kinder than that. Um, uh, but a famous... Uh, well-known pastor two or three years ago said we need to um, unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Um, he has not preached through Leviticus as, <laughs> um, as we have here. Um, and yet there is that question. I mean, I, I bring that up because it's a hard question to know how is the play between these two things. Um, one of the things that I think would help us to begin with is to say that the Old Testament is Jesus' Bible. Jesus doesn't have a New Testament that he brings around with him. He has no Romans or uh, Galatians or Ephesians, no letters, none of the other stuff that he has with him. All his disciples at the time that Matthew's Gospel is written might have some correspondence with um, a, a wild guy named Paul, um, but they may not know the full story, is that the, the early church feels drawn back into this. And already in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said, blessed are you when you're persecuted, blessed are they when they say false things about you. And this seems like another preemptive strike, and we didn't talk about, I don't like um, projecting the historical consequences of what Matthew's community was, was like, because like we know, um, uh, at best, this was 1,900 years ago, and we've got good guesses, but nobody wrote down. And then the, the next day after I wrote the Gospel of Matthew, this is what happened. So, um, But what it seems like as you sort of read through the Gospel of Matthew and sort of look at the context of the time is Matthew's community has been forced out of the synagogue, that they've sort of been cast out. And, and the early Christians, I think, thought to some degree that they thought might, they might be able to live in harmony with the Jews that go to regular synagogue. And at, and at best, or at worst, they thought that all of them, and this is Paul's dilemma in the last half of Romans, is that all of us would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that he is the anointed one, the Messiah. They thought either, as we talked about it long enough, all of the Israelite Jews would come to this knowledge, or um, that at least we could live in some sort of harmony. That is not the case, and this community is sort of cast out from that. And so one of the things we can think of perhaps happening is they're building around this sort of new ethic, inviting in Gentile believers of doing this different thing, is um, uh, in, even in Jesus' culture, the church gossiped. <laughs> uh, they said, all sorts of things about what this body of believers is doing, how they're throwing, I mean, it, it, 
it's comical because there are people today who are like, well, I'm going to go find a church that doesn't have that. Um, I'm going to go find a synagogue where nobody talks behind each other's backs. And what we can kind of tell about this is this community is having false things said about them. And that is as old as time. Um, and they have these false things said about them about how they hold Torah. Now, this is, I think, as a pastor, when a new pastor comes to town, um, many people will be like, does he take the Bible seriously? Do, uh, a common question in interviews from at least one person is, are you going to preach the word when you get here? That was the plan. Um, <laughs> perhaps what you're asking is, am I going to preach the word the way you want me to preach the word? And that I can't tell you at the moment, partially because I want a job and partially because... Um, do we want to get into that on the fourth hour of an interview? Um, and so when Jesus begins to gather people in the world, too, it, it sort of is a question of, well, does he take the word seriously? Does he take the Bible seriously? One of the commentators that we used in John would take to calling the uh, Pharisees the serious. They are the serious about the word. They are the ones who know what it say top to bottom. They've figured out the way it should be weighted and have figured out how to live that life. They're the ones who know. And so when Jesus comes, the question is, is what does he think of what comes before him? What does he think of Israel's scripture? What does he think of this before? And what he says is that he hasn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We'll get into what fulfill means here in a second. But what he's saying is, is that he stands in continuity, at least with all of that. Not one stroke of the pen would be taken away from what he's going to say. That this would be part of what he does. Now, the, the, the way in which this sort of works is those are the, the jot and the tittle in which he's referring to. One is sort of a punctuation mark in Hebrew. The other is sort of part of a letter. And he says, none of those things will be abolished. Um, until heaven and earth appear, not the smallest little nor the least stake of a friend will disappear until everything is accomplished. And so when you think about the books that make up the Old Testament, what he's saying is every little mark there will remain until it is accomplished. Now this, I thought, was a comical representation of this that that uh, do people know about the panda who eats, shoots, and leaves? The pa the panda eats, shoots, and leaves. But if you miss your commas, the panda eats some dinner, and then he shoots some people and leaves. Um, that uh, I like um, young people. If you're looking for a tattoo, don't tell them that I recommended this. But I think it's pretty awesome. Um, uh, the panda eats, shoots, and leaves. Um, and so what Jesus is saying is that in his fulfillment of all these things, even, even the commas will matter. Even these things will become to their fulfilled meaning. That Jesus is one who is going to take every last letter that's here and bring about the fulfillment until everything is accomplished. Now, one of the things that before we go too far is he says until everything is accomplished. And what he says later about his words is that they will be spoken in heaven and on earth. And so what he seems to be saying is the Torah is here until this is all accomplished. But the work that Christ does, that he is going to accomplish, is one that will continue on into the new creation. 
that his words last and go longer. And before we, we move forward into this next part, we're going to see um, him say this. And this is where you could see uh, why Jesus sort of does this preemptive strike here at the start of this, is the next six sections are going to be told up of, you have heard that it said, but I tell you that. You have heard it said, um, you shall not murder, but anyone who murder will be subject. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. That Jesus is going to go through several teachings from the Old Testament and going to begin with, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, without this teaching, without this, this part about the law and the prophets, it would pretty much clearly look like Jesus is not really doing fair justice to the Old Testament. It's almost like he's saying, if, if he didn't say this at the start, you have heard it said these things, but I say, ah, not enough. But with this intro, it seems more like he's saying, you have heard it said, but this brings out the fuller meaning of it. It started here, and this is where it's brought to completeness. And we're going to go through those teachings. Um, the group with Lauren, who voted that this sermon would get picked, series would get picked up again in Epiphany, and we'd finish it a little bit longer, one, and a vote of like four to nothing, I think. <laughs> You guys are voting people, I'll tell you that much. Um, so it was four to zero. Um, uh, you missed out if you didn't want to do the Sermon on the Mount in Epiphany season. Um, but, uh, so we're going to go through those a little bit slower, but there's this notion in which he says, you know, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and that's some way in fulfilling the notion of what was said, not erasing it. And what's, what's strange about Jesus as we go through this and strange about his relation is there are moments in which he loosens the law, notably the Sabbath and food laws. Let's go have some bacon. There are moments where he tightens the law, and this is what we often forget, is that is the contemporary sort of Christian church mindset is Jesus is one who frees us from the law. It was very easy in ancient Israel to get a divorce, and yet Jesus brings that one up to a heightened level. He says that that was given to you because you were stubborn. Jesus doesn't only loosen the law, but at places he binds the law as well. He makes them deeper, and this is sort of what he goes through when he goes through murder, adultery, divorce, uh, violence, eye for an eye, love of enemies. He's, he kind of takes them and takes them further. It's oftentimes that we think that, that we have it easier uh, than the Jews did on this, when in fact it actually becomes harder. There's a story uh, that Francis Schaeffer used to tell, if you're familiar with him, great. If you're not, it, it doesn't matter. It's a story. Is that he would bring together young people from America and he would ask them, he'd say, um, you know, what are the things culturally that we have to do? And so there's a screen up there. That's why I'm looking up there. If that screen were down, they would project this list onto a screen, like don't drink, don't smoke, don't get uh, eat shoots and leaves panda tattoos, um, uh, no rock and roll music. Um, this was the, I think, 80s. So uh, they were coming out of this sort of controlling culture. Um, and the, there were these sort of things. And what he said is that they all wanted to cast those things off. And, and Schaefer's community in Switzerland at the time was a community in which you could, you know, enjoy the things of the world to some degree. But what he said was, is they never realized that once you lift up that screen, once you take away the marks of like, don't do these things, the simple, and, and 
the list of what it means to be a Christian, right? Like, stay married, this, that, and the other. Once you lift that up, the law that stands behind it, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself, is actually more difficult. And that's what we often miss, even with this, is that, is that we say, well, all those cultural things, I'm not crazy about cultural Christianity. If we could get rid of that, then, then the church would be a more free place. Technically true in some ways, but also a much more difficult place because then we'd have to confront the actual demands of what God wants from us. It's much easier to stop cursing than it is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's much easier to not uh, get the tattoo than it is to, to commit yourself wholly to God. And so oftentimes, our way of sort of looking at this sort of discussion that's happening in first century Israel is to say that it's a discussion between those who want it easy and those who want it hard, when in fact, the, the side we often think is getting it easier is going to end up in a much more difficult spot in which we are called to. This jumps to the end of the sermon where Jesus says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. A passage we often forget about. Pharisees have false righteousness. We're going to have... It's hard because, you know, uh, a joke that nobody ever laughs at us is Christians were called to speak the truth in love, and by that, we take that to mean we're not called to speak at all. Um, Because... The idea is that we don't know how to speak the truth in love. We would rather just not say anything. Um, and so when we say we don't want to be the righteousness of the Pharisees, we don't often insert that there is a greater righteousness in which we are called to. We're just not going to have righteousness at all. We make that error often on many different things. And so what Jesus does in this passage or in, in this sort of section of the scripture is he's calling out a way for his disciples to sort of be in the world in context with this law, in context with this history of what has come before. We read from um, uh, the psalm to start the service was from Psalm 119, which is every verse, I think except for one, has a reference to law, statutes, ordinances, something of which comes from God. And as many of you know, it's the longest psalm by quite a distance as well. And it's this continual poem to this law that God has given people. And for us, it's to see Jesus as one who, who prays that as well. He's one who prays for the gifts of the law that God has given. But what Jesus is able to do what he does in fulfilling it is he's able to display its right purpose for us, its right goal and its right end to us. So what Brian read during the, the music time was, teacher, which of these is the greatest commandments? And Jesus responds to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Upon this is what the law and the prophets hang. Which is an interesting way to phrase that. What we can do is stop reading and say, well, those are the two things. But when in fact what Jesus says is that this is what the rest of everything hangs on. If you were put to put uh, two pegs in the wall and to say um, uh, love of God and love of neighbor, um, both contextually embedded, um, they, they mean more. One comes from the opening of Deuteronomy and one comes from the latter part of Leviticus, um, which is like, 
Jesus likes Leviticus. That's, that's good for us. Um, and what he says is, of the 613 other commands, they'll hang on these. Not that they're gone, but that they hang on those. And so what is it for the church to know the one who sets two before us, but then says the rest of them aren't thrown off, aren't abolished, aren't some of the commas are moved so that now we can eat, shoot, and leave, um, but that they are all fulfilled in who he is, and then they hang on these two commands. How is the church supposed to live and be in that place? And to pause for a second, Jesus says that he comes to fulfill them. There are six different ways to interpret fulfill, um, and all of them, to me, seem to have some truth to them. Um, I don't think we can quite get away from any of them. Although the first one is, is that he comes, and there's this, this pattern in this, uh, there's a pattern for the Messiah that the Messiah will come and give a new law. And that certainly, when Jesus says he fulfills, you could interpret that as him saying the one that I'm going to come and give a new law. That one's filled up to the top, and here comes a new one. That's the first one. The second is that he is the one who's able to do or execute the law. Christians are, are perhaps more familiar with this one, is that we say Jesus is one who lived the law perfectly. Um, he gets in trouble for violating some of the oral Torah that the Pharisees have, but, but Jesus is the one who fulfills the law by living it out. He brings it to its perfection and then enables it to be a new law. This is one where he fulfills it to the point uh, by living it, and then he brings a new truth or new law out of it. This is perhaps the hardest, number four, but I think it relates to where the sermon ends with the two houses, but also with um, the end of uh, this section of scripture, is that he enables, other to keep, enables others to keep Torah. By fulfilling it, he, he is enabling the community around him to then live it. That's a challenging one. Um, and, and Torah, we can take to be his new teaching there. It doesn't have to be the Old Testament teaching. But that by doing it, by fulfilling it, by living it, he is enabling a new a people to do it. Paul will get into this, uh, uh, the new law from Christ in Galatians is the spirit of freedom, but it's this freedom that takes us away from the sins and slavery of the world and sets us in a new plane. Um, the fifth is uh, that he reduces it to the love commands that we talked about at the end, um, that when he's asked, you know, love of God and love of neighbor. Um, part of uh, that, I think, is a good one. Um, uh, although that, if, as long as you keep in mind that it hangs, but the struggle is, is if reduces to the love commands, I think love is such a vapid term nowadays that it's very hard to say, like, uh, people, Blackberry, which, <laughs> dated reference, look it up when you get home, kids, um, uh, used to have an ad campaign about how you love your Blackberry. Like, and we see love all over the place. Um, and it's not only that, it just seems to lack any teeth to it. The, the G.K. Chesterton used to say, to love something you need to... Um, uh, love it enough to see and to delight in it, but also hate it in certain places enough to want to change it. Um, 
what I would say is that that overarching picture of love, I think, is more correct there, is that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, is to have sort of a robustness to it that's not just like, let, let, let it lie. Um, and, and so I wouldn't say he reduces it. I think that one, uh, that's probably the most popular, uh, I think, for, for many in the church today to say that he reduces these things to the love commands. And if we had a robust sense of what love means, I think I might be more okay with that. Um, the last is, is that he fulfills its prophecies. That the law and the prophets, that what they continually pointed to was this one who comes and will live this law out perfectly. And by fulfilling it, he um, uh, is able to sort of release it too, is that he's able to, to sort of move through it. He's able to see its points and its resonances and to speak its truth out loud by being the one who can fully live Torah. Um, and that's, that's how we can sort of see these ways in which Jesus is sort of the evidence of these things. And so Jesus is one who fulfills these law and prophets in all those ways for us. I'm trying to think that the, the next section that he's going to go through about this better righteousness um, includes uh, murder and hate, uh, lust and adultery, divorce and oaths, eye for an eye, love of enemies, and then the positive sort of God direction, uh, if you want to read those first ones as neighbor, uh, the next one's almsgiving, fasting, and prayer, that Jesus' notion of what this better righteousness might be is, is going to be sort of clearly laid out in this next sort of uh, two chapters um, on what this better righteousness looks like. And what I think is, is worth pondering, we're, we'll, like I said, we'll walk through them, is that this better righteousness is, is perhaps very normal. Um, uh, I, I don't want to say mundane, but, but when, we, when we think of what Christians are called to do in the world today, um, it's, it's, when, when we talk about it, it's like to go and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to go and uh, set up a just society, to go and, and um, care for the widow and the orphan, to go and do these things. And I, none of those things aren't true, but when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is constituting these people, what he wants them to know is, is what does it mean that murder is now interior to you, that, that lust is not just um, going through with the act, but sort of like bringing yourself into it, that, that divorce and oaths, eye for an eye, enemy love, that they're very normal near-to-home type places. They're not just go off and make a better world, but bring these things into yourself and into to the Lord. It's very concerned about the small is what I would say. And so as Jesus fulfills these things, he doesn't just set it up so that we would move into a more um, larger realm. It almost like gets to a microscope. It goes down into us. Jesus is going to get nearer to us and get to know us through these commands in a way that perhaps uh, when you really sit with them, we're not ready for sometimes. And what I mean to say about that is, is, we talked about this at the start, is over all the centuries of this teaching being out there, um, many people outside of it have continually said, it's great, but who can do it? This was an early Christian complaint. This was a complaint. Uh, Nietzsche had this complaint too. Nietzsche also uh, thought it praised too many weak things, which was interesting. But um, that, that, that who can fulfill this sort of thing? 
And this is where I think that the modern church can end up saying that the Sermon on the Mount is there to prove that we can't do it. This teaching, which we started with, um, and then we moved into the blessings, I wanted to return to today. As Christians, we ought to live the ethic of the sermon. We are human, however, and so cannot live the sermon perfectly. We ought to therefore both recognize our obligation and our inability, and by that very recognition, give glory to God. What this is saying is that as Christians, this is a binding ethic for us at Defiance Church. And yet, as humans, we cannot live it perfectly. We are flawed and will fail along the way. And yet, instead of saying it's impossible, what we do in the gap between what we're called to do and what we can't do is give glory to God in our own erring way. We continually try that this is the call for us in this world. And so it is here in this attempting, in, in listening to Jesus, we can surpass the, the Pharisees in their righteousness. There's one, two last things. He says that, that um, before that, uh, it's such a short section, and then you know when you want to look for like one thing in it, you just go blind on what you're looking for. Um, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands, whoever does these commands and practices and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There we're being told again that this is for us to attempt to live. And what this greater righteousness is, I think, in the end, is our ability to be attached to Jesus Christ. That in being bound to Christ, we find that greater righteousness. It's through him who lived this righteousness, who fulfilled the Torah, and in being connected to him that we become ones who are righteous and can live into that space. Grace, and I've talked about this before, grace is often for us the receptacle that says our sins are forgiven, which is true, but it's also the soil in which we grow. Grace isn't there just to negate, but it enables us to pray. It meets us in the positive. It calls us to live, even as flawed as we might this ethic, to do and to practice, that grace enables us to sort of go forward with this. But the last thing today, to sort of name this difference in the ways that we might get it in the inner religious sense, um, is the story I found in a Pope Benedict's book on Jesus, but it's a, a story between two rabbis. Um, and the, the quote, uh, one of the quotes from it is on the back of the bulletin. But it says, let us draw out the essential points of conversation in order to know Jesus and to understand our Jewish brothers better. The central point, it seems to me, is wonderfully revealed in one of the most moving scenes of the book he's talking about. He says, um, uh, spent the whole day following Jesus, this rabbi, um, modern rabbi, envisions himself following Jesus and writing about the dialogues. Um, that's the book that, that Benedict is referring to. And now he retires for prayer and Torah study with other Jews of a certain town and in order to discuss with the rabbi of that place, once again he is thinking terms of contemporary across millennia, all that he has heard, the rabbi cites from the Talmud, Rabbi Shalema expounded 613 commands were given by Moses. 
365 negative ones corresponding to the number of days in the solar year, and 284 positive commands corresponding to parts of man's body, which I think that's a project for home if you like application. Go home and find the 248 positive commands corresponding to the parts of your body. David came and reduced them to 11. Isaiah came and reduced them to six. Isaiah again came and reduced them to two. Habakkuk further came and based it on one, as it is says, but the righteous shall live by faith. Nuarza then continues with his book the following dialogue. The master says, is this what the sage Jesus had to say? Not exactly, but close. What did he leave out? Nothing. Then what did he add? Himself. This is the central point where the believing Jew experiences alarm at Jesus' message and the central reason why he does not wish to follow Jesus but remains with the eternal Israel, the centrality of Jesus' eye and his message, which gives everything a new direction. At this point, the author cites an evidence of this addition of Jesus' words to the rich young man. If you, would go, if you would be perfect, go and sell all you have and come and follow me. Perfection, the state of being holy as God is holy as demanded by the Tory, now consists in following Jesus. What is the Christian difference? It's the one who speaks this sermon and this command. That that is the bridge too far is what this rabbi says, is that he's added himself into the mix. Truly, I say to you, in, in, in the Greek, amen, I say to you. He's, he's prefacing his words with the authority to say that I have the ability to discern these things as if I were God. In fact, I am God. Jesus is the one who has, enables us to l- read and study and love the law and the prophets. But it is because of his eye, it is because of who he is that we are able to do that. And so it is, nothing will be abolished. And yet we are called to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees together, to do and to practice and to teach this law. Let us pray. God, you have spoken to us through your law. You have spoken to us through the prophets. And through all that, we see it pointing to the character of your son, Jesus Christ the one who lives it, the one who discerns it, the one who waits and teaches it, the one who guides us through it. And so it is for us in being bound to Jesus, to be bound to those words as well, and to hear and to see and to listen to the way that he teaches it so that we may too grow in righteousness to the character of son of your son who you've bound us to who lives and reigns with you the holy spirit 